So this morning's passage comes from Leviticus 1, verse 1, and it's only actually the first half of that verse. And here's what it says. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. That's all. That's the word. So I can appreciate Leviticus and Christmas seem like odd bedfellows, um, but they're not. I think the reason they feel odd is because, well, you probably haven't read it. And I can understand why. It's weird. It's difficult. It seems to have very little relevance today. After all, animal sacrifice is not something we set time for. So I can appreciate that. But I think there's something going on here that is important. So the Bible is something, you know, scholars call it progressive revelation. What that means is from Genesis 1 through to Revelation, God is revealing more of himself, never contradicts himself. So the God who creates everything in Genesis 1 is the same God who restores everything in Revelation. However, he's building upon that foundation of the God who sets the world in motion by his speech. He's building on that constantly, and we learn more about God as the Bible goes on. It's a story. And in some ways, think about the Bible story as you might with things like piano lessons. So when you first learn something like the piano, you learn things that can seem mundane at first. Hand position, scales, you know, the basics. Now, the difference between when you move from chopsticks to Chopin is not that you have forgotten the early hand position and the basics, but rather that they are perfected. You know them so well, and you've learned so much in between that the basics are still there, but they're done so beautifully, so simply, that you don't even notice it. And piano lessons are like that. They build one after the other. The last skill prepares you for the next one, and so on, and so on, and so on. And that's what happens in the Bible. And because the Bible is a narrative, it is a story, Leviticus, though it is not technically a narrative, there's parts that are narrative-ish, but it's mostly law, but because it's set within a story, it comes and fits into the story perfectly, and it does a very important job where it is. Because at this point in Israel's history, Israel has been saved out of Egypt by, uh, by God. They've been redeemed from slavery. He then leads them out of Egypt, and they settle around Mount Sinai. And they spend a year sitting at Mount Sinai listening to God. And Leviticus is what comes out of it. That's what they've been told. And what they've been told, though, is this. I've saved you. Now God says, I'm going to covenant with you. I've made a deal, a pact with you. And you're going to build this portable worship complex, this portable Sinai where I'm going to dwell. And then comes Leviticus, and he says, now that you've done this, here is how you're to live if you want to relate to me and if you want to relate to the world. There's no other way to happiness and to live the life you really long for unless you are fixed with this relationship between you and I needs to be fixed. And so Leviticus then pops in to the narrative and fills that void. And if we pay attention and if we understand Leviticus better, we'll actually understand Christmas far better. And that's what we're going to attempt to do all through this series, but especially today as we look at this passage. And this one passage, we're going to look at it backwards. We're going to start with, and there's three points here. And you may think, how do you get three points out of seven words? It's there. We're going to start, and it's going to show us that if we understand what God is saying, we'll know Christmas better because we learn what God is doing, what he is saying, and then what it means. We're going to do it. We're going to stay at this little verse. And we're going to ask, what is God doing, what is he saying, and what does it all mean? And that's where we're going to go. So let's begin with what he is doing. First, we begin at the end of this passage. 
It's hard to call it a passage, but that's it. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. Let's start there. It's difficult to um, overstate the importance of that statement because up until this point, God has not dwelled amongst sinners. He's come down on the mountain, right? And he's thundered from the mountain. And in fact, not only thundered from the mountain, but anything, including animals that touched the mountain, were to be killed. So there's a certain relationship there. So when we read that now God is amongst them in the tent of meeting, this is a radical development in their relationship. You know, it's the next step. It's like moving in. That's something something you should do, by the way. But it's a different step. God has come and dwelled there. And one of the interesting things I don't think people realize is if you read the last verses of Exodus and then start with Leviticus, you realize it tells, it flows. It's like a sequel. The last verses of Exodus say this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it. And the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. And then Leviticus, the Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. So you see, it's a continuation. God has settled on this tabernacle. But now, before we move into any more, the whole series will be very much more helpful to you if you understand what the tabernacle is, what it looked like, and what its purpose was. So we're going to do a little bit of scholarly teaching here, okay? A little your peers, your, or pupils at the moment. The tabernacle is, well, it's a, it's, a, it's a Latin word for tabernaculum, which means tent. But in the Hebrew, it's a word called mishkan, or mishkan, mishkan. And it means dwelling or abode. Um, Greek we'll talk about later. So it's a dwelling. And what it was, was, and you can put this first slide up, it's a, it's a diagram of it. You can Google, if you're listening at home or later on on a podcast, you can just Google tent, the, the tabernacles, lots of images. So the tabernacle was this. God said, make this big rectangle, and the walls of it on the outside are to be like curtains. They're made of canvas or, or linen, and, they, um, and it, they're just like a fence in a rectangle with a door on facing east. It's a big rectangle. And when you walk into the tabernacle, the first thing you see is the court. That's where any Jew was allowed to go. Okay? It's open, open season. And in this tabernacle... Okay, well, I'll, I'll explain what's in the court in a second. And then it's wide open, but then there's this one tent at the far end of it called the Tent of Meeting that's divided into two rooms. That's in a big nutshell what the tabernacle is. Let's go to the next one. Now, this is the physical look and layout of it. When you walk in the door, the first thing you see in the tabernacle is a big altar. Every burnt offering was made there. Public came. You brought your offering to God. You were allowed to go right there and be involved. There would have been tables set up on either side called the, well, slaughtering tables, where you would, that's where the work was done, killing the animal before it was put on the altar, if that was what was required. And that little circle back there is the laver. That's where the priests would wash themselves. So that was open season. Every Jew could go in there. In the tent of meeting, however, only priests could go in. Okay? And they're cut, it's divided into two, this room, the tent of meeting, by a veil, which we'll talk about in a lot over the next few weeks. And in the first place, the first spot, all the priests could go in. It was called the holy place. And in it, there was the table of the showbread, that little rectangle at the top, 
which was 12 loaves of bread that were put there every Sabbath, sprinkled with incense, and they were meant to symbolize that the covenant with God is the bread of life. Remember Jesus? I'm the bread of life. This, the covenant was made. That was there all the time. On the other side, there was the, the lampstand. You see it there? Seven candle lampstand, which was practically, it was there because they needed light. That's one reason. The other reason is meant to symbolize that God is the light of his people. So it was there for that reason. The, the little other one was the altar of incense. And that only priests could offer incense offerings. And the point of it was to put it in the holy place because the incense was like prayer. And it was to remind Israel that prayer must be central to all of their relationship with God. And the priests did that. Now, the next spot was the Holy of Holies. And the only thing that was in there was the ark, which we've talked about before. And that, of course, had the Ten Commandments in it and Aaron's staff that budded and uh, pieces of manna. And only the high priest was allowed in there and only once a year. Okay? So this is the tabernacle, this portable uh, worship center. Okay? And the reason this is incredible is because up until this point, God had been with Israel, but not with them this nearly. They had come, like I said, he had come down onto Mount Sinai on two occasions in Exodus. But now he is dwelling among them for the first time. Okay? So things look very good at the outset of Leviticus. And they should. And Leviticus is a very positive book, believe it or not. But there's also a looming problem in Leviticus that we're going to talk to next. So if what God was doing in Leviticus is what we see right away, that he is in the, temple, the tent of meeting, is that he had come down. That's what he's doing. What God is doing is like he's come down, which you see Christmas being right away relevant. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. The second thing is what he does next. And the, very, the words just before that part about the tent of meeting say, um, where was I? The Lord called, called Moses and spoke to him. Spoke. This is very important. See, the differenti differenti uh, differentiating characteristic of the God of the Bible versus every other God of the ancient world and modern is this. He speaks. And speech always is revelation. Okay? Think deeply here. Speech always reveals something, especially when God does it. Speech is what renders action unambiguous. Speech interprets experience. You see, uh, let me use some examples of this. I'll use a practical one, and then I'll use, well, they're all practical, but then I'll use some biblical ones to show you. If I was on the street, and you saw me walk over to, uh, you know, Salvation Army does the kettle drives every year? You know, collecting money. You saw me walk over, and I put some money into it and walked away. What you would see is only facts. You would only see Carl walked, he dropped some money in, Carl left. What you need to interpret those actions is speech. You need, if you want to know what my motive was for doing it, you have to ask me or try to go deeper. So you'd come to me because, you, you know, why would I do it? You may think, what a nice pastor. I could be doing it because I saw you watching me and I want to look really good. I may be doing it because I feel guilty. I may be doing it because it's a good tax write-off and I'm going to ask him for a receipt. Like, there's any, or I could just be a nice guy. <laughs> That's possible. Unlikely, but possible. And so the, to understand it, you'd need speech. Somebody would have to come and render my actions unambiguous, unambiguous. And when you look at Scripture, think about the same thing. Scripture is God speaking to us. And he's not just saying random things. He is interpreting to you what history is. This is what the prophets do all the time. So history will say, Babylon invaded Israel in the 6th century BC. God says, I sent Babylon 
to invade you in the 6th century BC. You see, he interprets the action. Uh, history would say Israel became a divided nation under the reign of Rehoboam, Solomon's son, because Rehoboam had a terrible character and bad policies. History. God says, no, if you read 1 Kings 14, I sent Ahijah, the prophet, to Rehoboam, and I told him, I have torn the kingdom from you. Yes, there's these facts that you were a donkey, you were not a good king. If you read about Rehoboam, you're horrible, and you deserved to lose the kingdom, but I tore it from you. Make no mistake. So God shows up, and he interprets action and tells you what they mean. This is what Revelation does, what God constantly does. And in Leviticus, he comes and he doesn't just say, here's the rituals, step by step you're to follow. He interprets the rituals and says, this is what they mean when you do them and why they work when you do them. So God comes and he does all of this. Now, there's a problem, however, with what he reveals in, in Leviticus, a problem for us. Um, he says, you have a lot of vertical problems or horizontal problems, sorry. You know, you and I, our world is a mess. There's death, there's environmental catastrophes, there's um, robbery, jealousy, gossip, every, every number of things. We're a mess. And he says, all of your horizontal problems, relational problems with, you, with one another is rooted in a vertical problem. There's a, a relational rupture between God and man. And you can't fix it. The only way to fix this problem Think about anything. It could be anything from your views on vaccines to government to my soccer team being not very good. All of this stuff. Well, that's, maybe I can't blame God for my team not being good. But um, All of this stuff, he says, is rooted in a rupture in our relationship. But good news, Leviticus says, I've made a way. The way to do it is that there will be atonement. There's a, I will accept a certain sort of thing from you. And if you do these things, I will accept them as atonement, and namely its blood, right? This kill the animal, the sacrifice of the life for the life that you owe. Now, it sounds very good, but there's been very big problems with this. No, okay, not problems like they're not good. There's issues for us with these rit rituals because you've heard before that the rituals have to be repeated. God says you must repeat them. Every year do the, the day of atonement, and every time you sin, do this, and they're repeated. And the reason you have to repeat them is because the issue, what God wants from you, is not so much a ritual. He wants perfection, which is far worse. He demands perfection, and because you can't be perfect, you have to keep offering this ritual over and over. So the, and we know this because in Leviticus 19, he'll say something, and then Jesus will repeat it so it doesn't get any better with Jesus. God in Leviticus 19, too, says, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. And then Christ will repeat it. He'll say the same thing. You, therefore, must be perfect, which is the word unblemished in, in Greek, um, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So God comes and he reveals himself, and what he reveals is all at once grace, but also law. You're broken, and you must be perfect if you're going to fix everything. If, you're going to, if, if the world that you live in that you don't like, if all of your longings and your desires are going to be satisfied, it's not about trying harder. You must fix this relationship up and down. So without perfection, there's no happiness, no satisfaction. You'll always be eating, but always be hungry. You'll always be accomplishing, but always feel like a failure. You'll never quite reach the ring that's just outside. The only way is to be perfect. That's the ominous element of Leviticus. But there's hope. 
Because if that's what God is saying, what he's done is he's come down. What he's saying is you have to be perfect. But what does it all mean? Well, we see it, I think, so beautifully in this passage. So, is this really the best we can do? Is the best humanity can do is success, failure, success, failure. And we just keep going, this ebb. If that's the case, man, that's a horrible life. If there's never hope of getting better, go back to sports teams. We support the sports teams we do because we hope that one day they'll win. If we know they're never going to win, it's difficult to support. So is that really all life is? Is this it, Leviticus? Is that the best we can do? Is sacrifice, you're okay with God? Sin. Sacrifice, sin. Sacrifice, sin. Well, let's consider Christmas for a moment. Because even our broken Christmas season, all the things I love about our, our Christmas rituals, even those dimly point to the, the problem and the solution. Because we know it's statistically been proven, scientifically, that when you put up Christmas decorations, you're happier. Dopamine increase, okay? It's very good. Everything, Christmas songs are wonderful. I like Bing Crosby. I like the decorations. I like the songs. I like the movies. I love it. And the reason we love it is because it gives us this sense that the world is better at Christmas. I mean, even non-Christians will say this, that we feel more hopeful, more generous. Everything, everything is, it feels better. And not just that it feels better, but we think that this is the way life should be and it could last and it should be able to last. Remember the old Perry Como song, Oh, if I had the Christmas feeling all year, what a world it would be. Yes, it would be incredible if we could keep the Christmas feeling all year. The problem is we can't. But let's, let's use one more example because uh, one of probably the most famous Christmas story outside of the Bible is A Christmas Carol by Charles Dickens. And it's about this reformed um, Scrooge, which has become a verb, but it's also who is, what his name is. And Scrooge, at the end, is feeling much better. He's speaking to the last of the spirits, the spirit of Christmas future, and he's reformed. And here's what he cries out. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, the present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. Oh, tell me that I may sponge away the writing on this stone. Now, he has the right idea, right? This is what Christmas does to us. It gives us this sense that we can do better. We can fix it. We want to keep it. We want to honor Christmas all year. We want to be good people and all of this. But you see, don't go to, to Charles Dickens for your theology. Bless it. I love the story. But Charles Dickens is a poor theologian. Look at that last line. Tell me that I may sponge away the writing. You see, the reason you get a lot of, you have, you're hopeful at Christmas, but then comes January and your resolutions have broken, the scales are heavier, the bank account's lighter. And the reason is we think if I just tried a little harder, if I just tried to keep this Christmas feeling, I could be better. If I try to be a better husband, I could be better. If I try to be a better Bible reader or work outer, is that a, that's not a word, work outer, you know, work, if I worked out more, if I just tried harder, I could do it. And it's not just the 19th century author who says this. Some of us are old enough to remember in the mid-80s, there was a, um, a push, uh, a desire to, to remedy famine that was happening in Africa. Remember, there's all the songs that came out. There was We Are the World and all that. Now, there's a line, I'm not going to put on screen, so I just became to mind this morning, but in that song, We Are the World, we see the same problem. 
There's a, in the bridge, it says, we are, um, there's a choice we're making. We're saving our own lives. It's true that we'll make a better day, just you and me. You see, we're under the impression that we, if we just tried harder, God doesn't need to descend to us, we can ascend to him. If I just tried harder, if we just got our ducks in a row, we could get the vaccine out and save ourselves. If we just tried harder, we'd get a better government, a better husband, a better whatever it is. And this is the plague of Christmas, because Christmas all at once, I think God is there. I think God is at work. And in fact, the answer is actually in this passage. The very first lines of that we read this morning is, and God called Moses. Moses didn't call God. God takes the initiative. He comes. And I think, if I'm not completely out to lunch here, I think the answer to us comes here because the hope and the disappointment you have at Christmas is God calling you to him. Because all at once we're filled with hope, but then we're let down. And in both of those, God is saying, I'm trying to show you that there's a reason to hope, but you're not the reason to hope. And let me point out this, finish up a little bit with this illustration. There's this, uh, a mystery writer named Dorothy Sayers. She was um, the first woman, well, she's the first woman. I think she's the first woman to graduate Oxford. Is that right? I think so. First woman to graduate from Oxford. Um, wrote a number of books, but most famously, at least the ones I read the most, are uh, mystery, short story mysteries by, about an aristocrat, a dashing, debonair um, aristocrat who solves mysteries, because what else are you going to do when you're a gentleman? And his name is Lord Peter Whimsey. Now, in the stories, if you read them all, you, eventually he meets a woman named Harriet Vane. And Harriet Vane is, uh, well, at first he meets her, she's on trial, and she ends up being exonerated, everything's well. They fall in love, they have an on-again, off-again relationship, they eventually get married. Now, what is interesting about this, though it has never been corroborated, but it's rumored everywhere, is that Harriet Vane is Dorothy Sayers. Because Harriet Vane, in her stories, is a woman who's graduated Oxford and is a mystery writer. And rumor has it that Dorothy Sayers fell in love with Lord Peter Whimsey, her own character. Not literally in a strange way, but she's so struck by him that she wrote herself into the story because she wanted to be with him in the story. This is at least the rumor. Again, she's never, certainly had never corroborated that. And that is incredibly relevant to Christmas. That Christmas, what that Christmas feeling is trying to get us to do is to realize that God has written himself into our story. That he felt so in love with you and I. He's so in love with us that he couldn't stand to be apart. But knowing that we could never claw our way up to him, we could never wipe away the, stone, the writing on the stone, Scrooge. We can't make a better day, Quincy Jones and uh, Michael Jackson. We can't do it. You cannot climb up to God. He must come down. And what the glorious thing about Christmas is, is this, is he wrote himself into the story. And I've said it to you before, if Hamlet was ever going to know Shakespeare, Hamlet could never know Shakespeare unless Shakespeare wrote himself into the play. And God comes at Christmas and he writes himself into the play. And this is why it's so important that we read things like John 1, 14 to 17, that say, and the word became flesh and dwelt, skino, which means tabernacled in Greek. It's the same word used for tabernacle in the Greek Old Testament. That God came, uh, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. 
From, uh, and for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Christmas tells us, I know the Christmas songs say it, but they're, they're missing it a little. God didn't come to dwell among you. He came as you. There's a difference because he'd already dwelled among us in the tabernacle. But he came and he became one of us. And that is the more important aspect. That he came and didn't just say, I'm going to come and be near you. I'm going to come and be as you. I am going to recapitulate. I'm going to live the life you should have. All these years ago when Israel failed, God comes and says, I'm going to relive your history, Israel, but I'm going to do it right. I'm going to live that way for you so that you'll be saved, not by your own wiping away of the stone. You see, every other religion will tell you this. will say, here's a way to ascend to God. Because every religion agrees that God is transcendent, that God is so far above us right? So, but the problem is they'll say, he's up there, we're here. There's a gap. And to fill that gap, what you have to do is build your way up there. And that's why other religions become a flurry of activity. Pray this way, do this, give that, say this, do this mantra. It all becomes activity because you're clawing up. You're Peter, you're Peter Whimsy trying to find Dorothy Sayers, Hamlet trying to find Shakespeare. And only Christ comes and only Christianity comes and says God is not just transcendent, but he's imminent. Not imminent with an I. Imminent means t- it's time. Like this sermon is, the end of the sermon is imminent. That would be time. But immanent with an A means near. That God has come near. Immanent, Emmanuel, not by accident. Emmanuel is a Hebrew word made up of three words. Emmanuel, with us, God. That's what it means. And God Christianity alone says that God didn't just say, here's the way to get up to me. He says, you can't, so I'm going to come and fill up that gap so that you can come to me. That's literally what it says. This is why it's such good news. You don't have to do it. This is why the angels in Luke 2 say, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so Christmas calls us to wrestle with this, to wrestle with the fact that you're hopeful but also disappointed at Christmas, and to look at what Christ has done, to see that peace is the reason we think we can have peace is because it exists and it's available. But you have to go and meet Christ in the story. He's come down to meet us. He loved us so much, he wrote himself into the story to save us. Don't let another Christmas go by believing that you can make a better day. Don't listen to Michael Jackson. Listen to Christ. Let's pray.